Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right. We are getting down to it. You know, I realized the last dance, I'm going to miss it. We're going to have one more Sunday night of that, and then we're going to be done. What are we going to do on Sundays then, huh? I guess golf is coming back. Not official PGA Tour events, but there's some silly season stuff coming up. And the PGA Tour in mid-June. We are now about a month away from the resumption of the tour, if all goes as what, right, it goes as uh, expected, if it goes right. Fort Worth Mayor said over the weekend they're ready to go. They're planning to play. And golf, it's, hey, it's fewer people, and the sport is outdoors, and it lends itself to social distance. So everything is all set up there. We'll see how that goes. For uh, As far as this Sunday, well, we got one more episode of The Last Dance, and it will feature the Jazz, since they've got the 97 finals, the 98 Eastern Conference finals, and the 98 finals. That's it. That's all that's left. I guess maybe there'll be a little bit of an afterlog. What happened to everybody afterward and how it impacted the rest of their life, how being in MJ's orbit. We talked about that a little bit yesterday. Man, I mean, Phil Jackson, right? The two three points, he gets all kinds of credibility. That's why he gets the Laker job twice and ends up with five more titles. Steve Kerr gets him a spot in San Antonio and a couple more titles. And then the Warriors head coaching job and three more titles. I mean, it really did pay off to be in MJ's orbit. Pippen got his huge contract. He went to Houston. He went to Portland. Uh, there, there were payoffs everywhere. I guess the one guy who really didn't spin it into much after that was Rodman because he was out of the league after another about 35 games or so. He went to L.A. briefly as Phil tried to reunite with him, and that, that didn't work, and he was gone. I guess Ron Harper cashed in on it because he went to L.A. and, and played for – Two, the first two Laker championship teams with Shaq and Kobe. He wasn't there for the third year of the 3 P. So, good to be in Jordan's orbit. All right, we'll talk a little bit about Jordan. And uh, not so much, you just, everybody can't have his talent, obviously, right? He's the GOAT, or Bill Russell is, but either way, you just don't get to have his talent. But you can still try to apply some of the leadership lessons. But how do you do that? We'll talk about that with Steve Cleveland next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's time to talk basketball with our insider, Steve Cleveland. He joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. You can visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Well, Steve, obviously there's only one Michael Jordan. And there's only one Kobe, and you're not going to coach those guys. But I'm curious watching episodes 7 and 8, where they really get into Jordan's competitiveness and how that... um, led him to treat his teammates at times, at other times is great, but other times they're walking on eggshells around him, and they went into the whole fight with Kerr and all that. And I'm curious, even if it's on a lower level, it's college, not the NBA, and someone's got a fraction of the talent of uh, Jordan, when you were recruiting guys, 
Did you see guys at the leadership and see AAU practices or high school practices or just talking to a guy and hearing stories about him? They're like, this guy has a leadership thing and everybody won't like him, but we need somebody like that on the team? Or can you not really get into that? It just kind of evolves on its own. No, I think, especially back in the day when, you know, we were watching guys play all summer and uh, then during the course of the year, you, you got to learn a lot about players. And, and you know, a lot of times you'd go to a practice and watch somebody in high school and you'd talk to his teammates. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what the NBA does. You know, they're, as they're recruiting and looking at draft picks and things, they, they talk to everybody. You know, they're talking to the family, they're talking to friends, teammates, finding everything you can potentially find out about that young man. And, I, and we, did that in, we did that in college all the time. I mean, I, I'd talk to the assistant coaches, I'd talk to the trainers, you know, what kind of team, is he a good teammate? You know, what are, what are his strengths and weaknesses? Because especially once you start, I know I know at BYU, once we started getting the players we wanted to get, it was important to, to get the complimentary players right. It was important to, you know, to not dis- destroy the chemistry of a team by getting a personality. So, you know, if, if a player had a personality and you understood that and he was, he was really good uh, on the floor, sometimes, you know, you took – you took a chance or two, you know, so I think this will work, you know, but you had to always be conscious of the chemistry of your team and the people you brought in. And I think everybody that's coached long enough knows that they had teams that had great chemistry and those that didn't. And sometimes, especially at our level, I mean, in high school, it's one thing, junior college, where oftentimes you just kind of get who you get. But in college, you, you get the chance to pick the guys you want to be in your program. And uh, so I, you know, I, I think there are moments when you look back and go, that may not have been a good fit, but then again, you know, most of the time it was. And you're dealing with kind of alpha, pretty personalities, and you have to make sure that there's a mixture of personalities so that there is that chemistry and you get that togetherness. Even though there, there's going to be an alpha dog that's going to have, you know, and I've had a lot of teams I've had had a really dominant, strong personality guy, and uh, and. You just you just have to work through that, and and you have to talk to your team about it, and you can't ignore it because if you ignore it, then it festers, and and then you do. I mean, anybody that's coached for a long period of time is going to have guys have fights in practice, emotional things. It's it's intense, and the pressures of winning, and just the fatigue of a season. You have to manage that as a coach, and and your assistant coaches really have to manage that. And you, I mean, a head coach can't do all of that. Assistant coaches have to deal with that in the locker room, on the road, whatever it might be, so that you don't become a distraction and hurt the team. But the best teams I ever had were teams when there were fights and practices occasionally. There were uh, words said after games when we lost. And uh, it, it didn't destroy the chemistry of the team. What it did, it brought us together. But there was some accountability. Uh, and you have to have that accountability. And, and when teams are player-led, then you know you have special teams. It's just the coaching staff who's trying to control the environment. It, you never really reach your full potential. So, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you've got to have that. I think to be really, really good, and, and I look back and think of five or six seasons that were really special, there was – it wasn't necessarily a Michael Jordan talent-wise. It was somebody that had a mindset like him that had an impact on that team. So, yeah, I, you got you got to have it, but you also got to manage it. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important is that the coaches can only do so much, and 
you saw and you were seeing here as we review this with the Bulls is that Jordan had no issue in terms of getting on guys, even to the point of punching him in the face, literally, and that might be the most extreme example. But, you know, we've seen with this Scott Burrell, he's up there talking about this guy, and he's got some ability, And but, you know, he's got to have the drive. How much do you need the guys to do it, or the guys? Say, like, in, in your case, we're in at BYU, Travis Hansen was, I, I deem that he was the best player on your team at the time. And how much do you need that type of player, which could be tricky, but need him to be able to call out other guys, too? Because I can remember one time he was whining to me about one of your guys not stepping up. Oh, no. I mean, listen, Travis was he was one of those guys. I mean, he, he was he wanted the ball in his hands. He, he wanted it. In, in difficult situations, and he did demand those things, and he did it. And he, he was appropriate. I mean, uh, Travis Hansen is one of the most competitive people that I have ever coached, and I have coached some really competitive people over the over the thirty-seven, thirty-eight years I coached. And, and Travis had that ability to really, really get the guys. You know, you're talking about a perfect example of player-led teams. Uh, he had he had the ability to go into a practice. After you're in the dog days of practice and you don't feel like you don't want to be there, guys have been in school all day, it's finals week, whatever the circumstances are, he could bring the best out of everybody. And he was not afraid of letting guys know that they got to step up and do things. And um, you know, Travis was one of the great leaders that, that I coached, and, and I've, I've shared that with him and shared it with others, that uh, he, he is the uh, essence of what a player-led team is. And you have to have leadership. And, and, and you know what? It's hard for a leader, it's hard for a player to lead when he's not the best player. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of great leadership in guys that weren't the best players, but the best teams, your best players are the leaders. And they don't, they don't shrink from it. They want that. They, you know, you get in the huddle, they're the ones, you know, the, the best example is that you get in the huddle and things aren't going well, you call a timeout. And a lot of times the coaches will go and chat for a little bit, and then that that leader, that team leader, that alpha personality is right there in guys' faces, telling them, "Hey, this is what we got to do." Da da da. And we come back in there, and that that makes for the best teams. And so, yeah, Travis was a great example of that. And you know, and, and I, I know in the early years, uh, McKelly Wesley was a young man that was you know people saw him off the court. He's mild mannered, but he was intense, you know, and. Uh, you, 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 even a Trent Whiting, who really wasn't with us but for for a year, came in as a transfer and had to sit a little bit. Again, had a really strong personality, and we didn't have great depth on that team, but we had really, really good leadership. And uh, and, and and you know, it's 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 why they were successful. It's why they were able to kind of turn that program around because of those personalities. And Travis was a younger player even then, but Travis made his presence known real early. And then his junior and senior years, he dominated. I mean, he dominated on the floor. Guys respected him. And uh, so you got to have that. You, you don't have that. You don't have that culture. Uh, it's, it's really hard to, to get to where you're actually playing to your potential. You know, leadership, people give coaches a lot of credit. I think the great coaches are the ones that found, figured out how to delegate that responsibility of leadership to their best players. And some people don't want to embrace that. You know, I, I, Terrell Lede was a young man that, that 
most people don't know in the community. He coached, he played for me for two years. He came out of, out of Fresno as a junior college player, maybe may the smartest player I've ever coached. And uh, he came in, and here's an African-American young man coming into Provo, Utah, never been there before, and he's just a great, skilled guy. And is as competitive, as tough a guy can you can be. But he, he didn't want that mantra. I mean, don't get me wrong. He, he was a competitor and as intense as they got, our best defender. But that's not what he wanted. And it wasn't him. He, he, he wouldn't be true to himself. You know, there were other guys on that team like Trav and McKelly and Trent that, that had that kind of alpha in him. He, he just wanted to play. And, uh, and it, you, you know, we couldn't, have, we couldn't have won the Mountain West Conference that year and won that tournament and got the NCAA without Terrell Day. So not everybody needs – you don't need a team of guys like that, but you do need one or two. And when you have it and you have talent, you're usually going to be pretty good. You know, when you look at uh, college basketball now, there's so many guys transferring between schools, and there are so many guys leaving not just for the NBA but for pro basketball. So that could be G League, two, two-way contracts, playing in Europe. There's all kinds of scenarios. And then you look at some of the local and regional teams we followed this last year. Obviously, the Cougars had three seniors who provided this thing you were talking about. Sam Merrill, the best player at Utah State, right? Set the tone. This is what we're going to do, and everybody knew it. Um, there was no doubt he was getting the ball for the last shot in the Mountain West Conference Tournament. Everybody knew that. In the Pac-12, you look at what uh, Pritchard at Oregon did for them as a senior and the big shots and the big plays he made in big moments. So the schools that can hold on to seniors, especially if you keep them in the program now, you know, Jake Toulson changed programs, and, and obviously he had a big impact. But, man, if you can keep those guys, because it takes a while to develop that leadership you're talking about. Oh, there's no question about that. And, and having seniors, um, you know, the funny thing is, I think it was Bill Self during this last year, you know, he was ta- he'd gotten beat by a team, and he said, listen, he says, we have great players. We have pros. You're right. But the guys that we're playing have been in that program for four years. And, you know, a fourth-year senior in the, the Big 12, they're as good or better than guys that are one-and-dones and going to be playing in the NBA. I mean, and not just at the talent level, but the emotional level, the mental level, the preparation level. So when, when you have seniors, and then BYU is a great example of that this year, Utah State, same thing, where you have veteran-type players, it's you know the transfers can just change everything, and I think that that's what this this transfer portal. I mean that's really I mean for like for a BYU now with, with a transfer portal where you don't have you know your guys aren't even having to, they're probably going to have to sit. It gives you a chance to bring guys in that you can you you know you've obviously talked to a lot of people. They're hungry. They want a new environment. They're going to be on their best behavior. And, and you're going to get a better player than you could get in any other circumstance. And so whoever it might be, and, and, and certainly Jake Toulson coming back and, and uh, getting the guard from Arizona, you know, you, that team got so much better with that experience, with that leadership. And so the portal's a huge thing. And if you go historically back to BYU, you know, they're, they're predominantly were, you know, bringing members of the church in, you know, guys from – Utah and Arizona and California, predominantly, you know, 80% of the time would typically be members of the church, and you had the honor code, and you had all the expectations, and uh, you know, it was hard. It was sometimes difficult for a young man to come in as a freshman who was a, not a member of the church and spend four years 
and, uh, you know, kind of change his life. And not everybody's capable of doing that. And so consequently, mistakes are made and guys have to leave school. You know, that's, that's been going on at BYU for years. Now you're in a situation where you can get really talented guys that are good people and maybe have a value system. And, and now you, I can come into BYU and do the things I was supposed to do and go to school and be a good person and, you know, understand the honor code and, and, and keep it for a year. And all of a sudden you realize that portal becomes a huge asset to your program. And I, I think, you know, we recruited a lot of junior college guys. Because at the time we took the job, you know, Utah was getting pretty much all of the best in-state players. And we, we can't, we said, we, we're not going to beat them on those guys right now. When they're going to the Final Four, we better find JUCOs, transfers. And so, you know, I mean, we probably had 20, 20 transfers in the first two or three years there just trying to get competitive where we could get a really, really good Utah kid because there were always a lot of good Utah kids. And that kind of changed things. So, uh, for me... I would love to coach with a portal because, and I, I think that, you know, Mark and Chris, they, they have a pedigree and they can go out. They had a great first year and they've got a lot of mileage out of a lot of transfers on that team. And at the end of the day, I don't think people really care anymore where the guys come from or they're a transfer or, you know, they don't have to spend four years in a portal. You find a way to have the best team every year and, you, and you, if it's through the portal or it's through junior college or whatever way it's going to be, uh, people have, you know, their memories pretty short. You know, you, you get going and they go, yeah, I like this. And I, I think the portal is a huge benefit to BYU uh, in terms of how hard it is sometimes to get into that school, how hard it is sometimes to, to, be, to stay there and keep the rules and do the things you're supposed to do. Uh, and I think guys come in there confident that they can do it. And certainly, you know, you got facilities and support. And so I, I think the portal is a, a big part and will continue to be a big part of basketball, not just at BYU, but throughout the country. So you take a look at a program like Arizona that's dipped its basically its whole body in. I was going to say toes, but they've gotten more than that in terms of the one-and-done players. Uh, so this past season, they have three guys who are freshmen that have made themselves for the draft, eligible for the draft, looking like they'll be uh, first-round picks. Three guys, they finished fifth in the conference. The year before, they don't make the playoff. And then the year before that, they've got DeAndre Ayton, who's the number one pick, and I think they get bounced in the first round. So they're going to have all this in terms of talent uh, at the pro level, but it didn't translate into what they're looking for. So do you think it's better to go for the grad transfer, as you say, as opposed to the one and done guy. Well, part of it depends what you know where you're at, what conference you're in, those kinds of things. And and certainly, if you're one of the ten elite, they're they're, they're going to have opportunities to get the best players in the country and guys that are going to be pros in a year. I, I think for especially for mid majors, you know, I think the portal serves them well. I mean, they're not likely to get a, a one and done guy. I mean, occasionally it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. And so, how you know what is, what does your organization look like? Where are your priorities? I and mean, you sit down with your staff, and and depending on where you start, you know, if you start with okay, we got a total rebuild here. Here's our model for recruiting. Okay, the rebuild is over. Now we want to sustain this. What's what's the next best thing? And and I you know for for me, 
uh, my jobs were so different, and every job I had was a rebuild. I mean, it was a start over from high school, brand new school, junior college, complete rebuild. Uh, BYU, it was a it was a rebuild, but it rebuilt in the sense of there just weren't any players in the program at that time. I mean, BYU's success over the years, and every one of the guys that coached there has just been amazing and had lots of success and get the tournaments. But at that, that time and moment, it wasn't. And then at Fresno State, it was the same thing. So my model for recruiting initially uh, was to get the very best player we could get, whether it was a one-year transfer uh, and, and play a half a semester like Trent Whiting did or get a junior college guy that can come in. That's how we could, only, that's how we could be competitive. That was the only way we could do it. We couldn't go out and build it on high school seniors. And then when we got to at that point when we started winning, then we, we got into those homes and we and we actually could say hey we've got something viable here you want to be a part of this but now uh you know if if i had had the portal in that setting with some of those jobs you know and then the fresno job was completely different because we had all sorts of violations you know on probation so that was a different dynamic that i was having to to overcome there but for me i w- i would love to be coaching right now with the portal and uh we're especially if they're going to do the you know don't have to sit out a year and uh, because it just opens everything up. And now there's, there's more equal ground. It doesn't matter if it's BYU and Duke anymore or BYU and Purdue or whatever it might be. Uh, it's one kid, and, and, and he, maybe he's more than likely been in a, a P5 program and wants to, he wants to go somewhere else where he's comfortable, likes the guys or the coach or the weather or whatever it might be. But they're, they're going to be a lot. I mean, I think at one time there was six or 700 kids in the portal. And during during the course of the last couple of years, man, that that's an opportunity for you to recruit, and uh, and I, I think personally, I, I think it's it's the best thing that could ever happen to mid majors, is that you have an opportunity now to get guys into your program uh, that can really help you. They've played three years, they're experienced, and say what you want about experience, but you take a really really good freshman. And I'm not necessarily made a blue chip All American, but you take a really good freshman that a lot of the Pac 12s might get, or or the Big 12, or wherever ACC. You take a fourth or a fifth year guy who's played 90 or 100 games. I'm taking that guy. I'm taking that guy. So and, and then get him every year. You can get him every year. It's not. It's no longer do I have to build this thing from the bottom. You can live off the portal, not for your whole team, but. If you get one or two guys out of the portal every year, it just it just helps that continuity of having experience in your program. So that's all about tapping into this uh, Jordan type factor, although it's Jordan light. We get that uh, at the college level, but at the pro level, whether you're the Jazz and you want Donovan Mitchell to watch all of these and to figure out what Jordan, you know, there was in, I think it was an episode five, some, maybe it was earlier though. Uh, I think it was BJ Armstrong said, you know, once Jordan figured out how to win that first time, he was unstoppable. That was like the last piece of the puzzle. So how does a young player, whether it's Donovan Mitchell here, or it's Luka Doncic in Dallas or whoever, how do they figure out that last piece of the puzzle? I guess, how did Steph Curry do it at Golden State? What has to happen that you figure it out? Was it Curry being partnered with 
at the right point in his career being partnered with Kerr who could help him figure it out because Kerr saw it with Duncan in San Antonio and Jordan in Chicago. How does that work for these young pro players? Because, you know, there's a few Jazz fans listening who are emotionally invested. Yeah, no, no, no question. You know, I mean, it, it, it takes more than – if you take a Donovan Mitchell or a younger player in the, in the league who is, wants to get to that next level um, – it, it requires to be surrounded by those kinds of people too, and, and I know everybody talked about Phil Jackson and how it didn't matter who coached that team. I, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> you know, I think that uh, the, the the mindset that's developed, the chemistry and the culture of, of a program, uh, the head coach has a lot to do with, and obviously everyone around him that's in that on that staff. And so I think those are things that that coaches have a responsibility to, I mean, Michael figured stuff out on his own, but he also had some really, really smart people around him. And I think the key thing is getting the right people around the right guys. And, and you, you just can't get the best player. That doesn't always work. You've got to get the best player that plays the best with this guy. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, that's, uh, you just don't sit down with a piece of paper and figure that out. You have to watch guys. And so when that draft comes and you're looking at people that are going to – how how will this guy play with a Donovan Mitchell? What kind? What will be the impact here? You're looking at those kinds of things, and, and, they, and they could be intangible type things or they could be on the floor type things. But I think Michael was surrounded by guys that he really felt like he could impact and get along with. And, and obviously everybody playing with Michael knew what a special talent he was. But I think the one thing that, that Michael was able to do is he was able to get guys to play on a level with, without – I mean, he, he did a lot of pointing fingers, and he, and he did get into guys and do those kinds of things. But I, I think they were patient guys. I mean, you, you look at Steve Kerr and he's talking, you know, and, and, and these guys all know. They, they have maturity. They know how good Michael was. And I think it's you have to. I think the word that comes to my mind is you need to surround superstars like that with selfless people, and if they don't, they don't have a a big ego. And I mean, they're competitive and they want to win and they have a role. And when everybody knows their role and what those what's expected from the best player or the head coach, man, teams get better, and they don't try to do things outside of their role. And you got Michael, the playmaker. You got Scottie Pippen, the guy who can make plays. Dennis Rodman, he, he was the ultimate team guy. I mean, he, maybe most people think he had lots of flaws personally and all this and that, but you know what? He was a huge part of that team, as, as were spot-up shooters, you know, like Paxton and Kerr. They, they, they had to be a part of it. Michael didn't need three more All-Stars. What, I mean, and mind you, he had, he had All-Stars in that team, but at the end of the day, he needed the chemistry and guys that could play with him, and he was as much a head coach on that team as Phil was. And Phil is so smart. Phil's not a big – I mean, I'm not – I don't know Phil Jackson. I mean, I met him once, and he may have a huge ego, but when he coached, he coached the strengths of that team and put guys in places where they could be successful and created an offense where they could be successful, where a 6'4", 6'5", white guy that couldn't penetrate and beat somebody off the dribble, he knew would be open because of Michael's ability to attract two players or Scottie Pippen's ability to attack and kick. And I, and I just think a lot of that success has to do with the preparation and the selection of those types of players and surrounding guys with the right players. 
And, uh, and it didn't happen immediately, but once it did and they got the, everybody in the right spots on the right page, then it became really special. So it, Michael, Michael has a lot to do with uh, how he motivated, how he embraced, and how he supported these guys. But Phil Jackson, I mean, he, he put the blueprint together. And he got guys in places where they can be most successful. And I think that's the key. Not everybody's going to be a three-point shooter. Not it, but, you know, sometimes kids in their minds, they want, to, they want to be the guy that handles the ball. They want to be the guy that shoots the three. And for great teams, sometimes you have to take a step back and accept a role and, uh, and put the best role guys around, uh, you know, a, a, a Donovan Mitchell. And uh, that makes him better and makes their team better. So those are the things as a coach that you're constantly scratching your head about and you're constantly talking about with your staff. You know, and listen, there were teams where I, you know, I did not start the best five players. Uh, that happened a lot. And I, I used to get grief from that from some of the guys that a player, a guy, why, you know, why is he starting? You want to know why he's starting? Because his teammate is way better when he's in the game. And he does a little – I mean, you got to kind of explain it to 18 and 19 and 20-year-old guys. He said, just trust me here. Uh, this chemistry works. Now, who's playing at the end of the game? It's probably not that same group. But for every team I had, I, ha- I had five guys I knew that when the game was on the line, it wasn't the five best players. It was the five players who played the best together. And there was great chemistry. And, it, you know, sometimes guys that are more talented struggle with that. Why, why am I not in the game? Because I'm, this is gives this group gives us the best chance to win this game, and uh, and you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself, and you have to have that experience and respect to the your teammates, and your, of your players. But good coaches, you know, they do that. I mean, that's what they do. They get the right people in the right place, and so to start a game, it's the same thing. You know, you're trying to find guys that play the best together, and and you you, you spend a lot of time figuring that stuff out. And it, it involves constant communication with the players, the coaches, being transparent, talking about these things, and ultimately the coach makes the final decision. And when, when you start winning, then guys buy into it and they realize this is my role. You know, this is what I do. This is who I am. And the whole time, you know, in, in today's world, it's like, what are you doing to help me get to the next level? Well, you, you're working guys out. You know, you, they're getting an hour every day with a, a personal trainer or coaches. You, you know, you're trying to – Make sure that they're happy about where they're going as a player, but at the same time that we ultimately are having the most success as a team. And so I, I know you have to placate everybody in this world, and, but guys want to play at the next level, fine. I'm going to help you with individual skill work. I'm going to do those kinds of things. But here's the things you need to do for us as a team so we can get to the tournament and win the conference championship or whatever it might be. Then you get that buy-in. Then and you get guys buying into that. Now you got a player-led team, and everybody knows that the coaching staff wants the very best for them. And then the parents understand that. And then the AAU coach understands that. And then you don't have mass exodus at the end of each year with people transferring. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. He's here every week on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Thanks, Steve. Hey, right, guys. Have a good week. There's our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. When we come back, the spring football tour continues with the Missouri Tigers. Coming to Provo, scheduled to play there October 10th against BYU. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. 
Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, and we are joined now by Peter Baugh. Covers the Missouri Tigers for The Athletic. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. This gives me the chance to say, Eliad Drinkwitz, what do we know about the Missouri Tigers' new football coach, other than the fact that well, he's at Boise State for a couple of years, so he's been booed in the state of Utah before? Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty interesting guy. He's, he's young, um, he's under 40, and is, is just kind of a – he doesn't have a ton of head coaching experience. Uh, the aside from his one year at Appalachian State, the most recent head coaching experience he had was a middle school coach in 2005. So he's been mostly an assistant uh, and is kind of seen as an offensive-minded, offensive-minded guy. Um, and yeah, he's he's someone who's young, and Mizzou wanted someone who could excite the fan base. Uh, and he's done that so far. He's said all the right things and gotten people pretty excited in, in Columbia. Yeah, he's certainly intriguing. You know, he's got the uh, different name, 36 years old, uh, in Appalachian State, where they go like 12-1 and one last year. Uh, and this guy's thought of as an offensive wizard. Is that what it's going to take to get people excited? Because it looks like when you are doing what he's done or the coaching staff has done as far as recruits for next season – Looking like he's on the right trail. Yeah, he's gotten off to a really good start recruiting-wise. Uh, first off, he kind of – I mean, the the class of 2020 was always going to be – it was always going to struggle a little bit, seeing as as um, kids decommit when, when there's a, a coaching change and you're not going to keep all of them. But he was able to, to hold on to some of the big ones, and he's also – gotten two good grad transfers in in um damon hazelton who's a receiver from virginia tech who was an all acc player the past two years and he also brought in a, a center who started three years at Rutgers. so he's he's gotten some good players that can make immediate impacts which mizzou desperately needs especially on the offensive line and at receiver so he's kind of addressed those positions of need and then he's off to a good start recruiting the class of 2021 the current uh high school juniors um and got the third-rated player in the state who Mizzou had been after for for a number of years um, named Travion Ford, who's a four-star player. So he certainly is recruiting-wise. He's really made inroads in the state of Missouri, which is something that's essential for Missouri, and he's done it quickly. So we're going to have a quarterback battle right from the get-go. Is this going to be a fair fight, or do you already know how this is going to turn out? So this is, I think, going to be a little bit more of a fair fight. I think um, Sean Robinson feels like the front runner, um, seeing as he played at TCU. He has he has some real experience. Um, but I think Connor Basilak, who is a true freshman in twenty or twenty nineteen, yeah, he uh, he was he looked really good in the limited action he saw. He even started the last game of the season when Kelly Bryant was was out with an injury. Um, the big problem for him is that he's coming off an ACL tear that he suffered in that game against Arkansas. So that obviously puts him at a 
pretty significant, um, I guess, disadvantage. But I think that he's expected to be ready for preseason camp. Um, and he and Sean Robinson both will get a fair shot to, to show what they can do. Um, Sean Robinson's older. Um, he'll be a redshirt junior after sitting out last year as a transfer. He has starting experience from TCU where he showed kind of flashes of being a really good player, uh, but couldn't do it consistently and struggled with injuries. So he kind of, and I've written about this a little bit out the athletic, um, he, he, the year he took off last year when he had to redshirt because of NCAA rules, it was really good for him to kind of reset mentally and to kind of get his body back in, in good physical shape. So we'll see if he's – that Mizzou's really, really excited about him, and we'll see kind of how he's able to do. But I, to answer your question, I think it's going to be a fair fight. I don't think that this is like they've already crowned Sean Robinson the, the starting quarterback, and they're kind of just saying it's going to be a competition to publicly. Like I think it'll be a, a pretty even – it'll be an even playing field. But you look at their depth chart, they don't have a lot of seniors on either side of the ball, do they? No, there are some positions that have, have more than others. Um, the safeties, there's two senior safeties that are both really good players in Tyree Gillespie and Joshua Bledsoe. Um, but, yeah, it's not a not a senior-heavy roster. Both defense, starting defensive ends are seniors. Um, but especially offensively, there's a lot of – there's a lot of youth on the field. They'll have Damon Hazleton will be a senior, and he's probably going to be the number one receiver. Um, Larry Roundtree is a really good running back. He's a senior. Um, but there is some youth sprinkled in. So when you're breaking in a new quarterback, you want a running game. What is the running game going to look like? So the running game, I think, will actually be pretty good. Um, the question is if the line can block for them. Um, Mizzou has Larry Roundtree, who was a 1,000-yard rusher. He ran for over 1,200 yards, actually, his um, sophomore year. Um, He's going to be a senior. He kind of took a step back last year, again, partially because the passing game wasn't as good. Um, So people were game-planning for him more, and partially because of the offensive line not producing very well. Um, But he's a a quality running back. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a shot at the the NFL. and then they have a guy named Tyler Beatty, who is a really he's really dangerous both as a running back. He's kind of a smaller, speedier, shiftier guy, but he's really good um, catching the ball too. He actually led the team in receptions last year, which is both impressive on his end, but also a little concerning about for Mizzou about their wide receiver depth. If a running back is your the person who gets the most receiving most receptions, uh, but between those two, though, they should have some solid options at running back, and then they have a few other um, kind of reserve guys who can come in to, if those two need a rest. Now, I'm thinking between those two, I can make a case that that's 2,000 yards of rushing right there. Yeah, I think you could you could see that. I mean, that would take things going really, really well, but it's certainly possible. So the receiving core, as you point out, the leading uh, 32 catches for Beatty was tops on the team. Uh, nobody had 500 yards receiving. Uh, is there anyone who can change that, or is it receiving by committee and it's kind of a C-minus committee? So I think that by bringing in – Drinkwitz knew the receiving situation as soon as he got um, to Columbia, and I think that's why he he brought in Damon Hazelton and went after him pretty hard. The graduate transfer from Virginia Tech, he he would have led 
Missouri's his numbers in 2018 or 2019 would have led Missouri in multiple categories, including receiving yards and touchdowns, I believe. Um, and he missed three or four games with an injury. So he'll be someone who he should be able to contribute right away um, and will, I would expect, be the number one receiver. There are a few freshmen coming in um, that are really – promising players there's a four-star recruit from oklahoma named Javion hester um who could who could do that i don't know if he'll be like a 1000 yard receiver but he's someone who can pick up a few hundred yards over the course of the season and if you have a solidified number one like they're hoping hazelton will be then you can then you'll have your second your secondary guys will have more opportunities because defenses will be focused more on Hazelton. So then someone like Jalen Knox, who had a good freshman year but kind of took a step back as a sophomore, he could have a good junior year. Um, so Hazelton's the main guy. And then there are a few others who I think could do a little better. And then you'll suddenly have more receivers that are are over like three or four hundred yards and hopefully for Missouri, one who's up to like eight hundred, nine hundred, even a thousand yards. You mentioned the seniors up front and in the back at defense. Uh, can I argue that Bolton, that linebacker, is the best playmaker? Oh, certainly. He he's probably if you're looking at at the team, he's probably the best player on the team. He is a an all SEC linebacker who led the conference in tackles going into the national title game. Um, then an LSU guy passed him, but remember they had uh, Mizzou played twelve games. LSU played what fifteen? I think yeah, yeah fifteen games. So. He is a he is a really good player that Missouri Barry Odom, the coach who was before Drinkwitz, he he found him in Texas. He was an under recruited player, um, and, and he he is very very good. He he makes all the right plays. He's smart. He tackles well, um, and he had a few interceptions last year. So I think he'll be he's he's certainly if he's healthy, he's the best player on the roster. I would argue. Peter Baugh joining us, covers the Missouri Tigers for The Athletic. So is there much, uh, I don't know, momentum, energy, enthusiasm? I mean, this game will be at BYU. Missouri's at BYU. But I'm still just kind of curious about the energy around the program because it just seems like there have been a lot of 500-ish seasons. And the move to the SEC is great for the money, but uh, – after a, after a couple trips to the title game early, it just kind of seems blah. Yeah, I think that it's, it kind of stagnated under Barry Odom, which is part of the reason athletic director Jim Stark made a change. Um, they, they had an opportunity to have some really good years. Um, the 2018 team comes to mind. That, that team had some really promising players, Drew Locke, the Denver Broncos quarterback was starting and they blew a few close games. And instead of winning say nine or 10 games, they won eight. Um, and it's just not the same thing to like get fans excited. Um, so I think they are looking for excitement and drink what's is young and energetic. And I think part of the reason they made the coaching change was so that they could have someone like him. And the fact of the matter is that a place like Missouri, it's maybe not like Georgia where they'll sell out, the games no matter how good the team is if the teams are good missouri will get fans and people will be excited if the teams are mass some people show up some won't and if the teams are bad not a ton of people will show up so if if Drinkwitz is able to come in and have some success there is an opportunity to kind of build that excitement back up and i think the athletic department's counting on that um jim stirk the the person who 
who hired Drinkwitz, is he has a lot riding on this hire. Seeing as Barry Odom was, he he wasn't a he didn't have a bad track record at Missouri. He didn't have a losing season the past three years. So it was it was kind of a risky move to move on from him. And they need the replacement to to not only win games but also to spark excitement and get fans in the in seats if fans are allowed to be in seats, of course. And and that very way very well may happen, but I don't know that I necessarily see it happening this season, this upcoming season, because as I handicap the SEC East, uh, I'm thinking that the best I can come up with is Missouri at fifth place. Yeah, I think that clearly Georgia and Florida are ahead. Um, I think Tennessee and Kentucky probably are. You could maybe, see, if you steal a game or two, then who knows? Like it's those teams probably have more talent. Missouri has a a favorable, I guess, crossover schedule where they play only Mississippi State and Arkansas. Um, so there's there are chances for Missouri to to kind of steal games and maybe finish with a better conference record. But yeah, I'd probably if I was guessing today, I'd predict them fifth. I've said that with their non-conference schedule being manageable, I think they can win six games and, and get to a bowl game, which I think would be a productive start. And then maybe Drinkwood starts getting his own guys, building his own recruiting base, um, and you go from there. But I think, yeah, Georgia, Florida are clearly better. Tennessee um, is talented. I'm still not 100% sold on Tennessee because they always seem to underperform, but Jeremy Pruitt really seems to have things rolling there. Um, Kentucky's always solid. I think Mizzou could beat them, but that's always a good team. Um, South Carolina is going to be pretty solid. Uh, the only team I think Mizzou knows it can be better than is is Vanderbilt. So I would predict somewhere in the four to six, uh, four to six range um, within the SEC East. When you say the non-conference schedule is manageable, Central Arkansas, Eastern Michigan, and the University of Louisiana, Ragin' Cajuns all at home, and then at BYU, so you're thinking 3-1 or 4-0? Oh? Um, I said that I think they'll, they'll probably drop one. I think the UCA and Eastern Michigan are both games that Missouri should win pretty easily, and if they don't, that's a problem. I think Louisiana was a 10-win team last year uh, in the Sun Belt, so that's a solid program. And then BYU is a solid team in Provo. Going out to Provo, that's not an easy place to play necessarily. Um, so I think that Missouri, I would argue Missouri should go 4-0, but I think that they might go 3-1 and just because they might drop a game uh, to either Louisiana or BYU. Well, Peter, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us, and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you when the season gets going. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. There's Peter Baugh from The Athletic covering the Missouri Tigers. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines are coming up. Stay with us.